Hello, my name is Samuel George London and welcome to Comics for the Apocalypse. On today's episode, I speak to comic book writer and jolly good chap Joshua Spiller about what comics he would take into a solar storm reset apocalypse. But before we get into it, I'd like to give a quick shout out to our sponsor, the Comic Scene Comic Club. Available from just £5 a month or £30 a year, you can get monthly issues of the History of Comics, Shift, Brawler and specials of Pat Mills' Space Warp. To find out more and subscribe to the Comic Club, visit comicscene.org. Now, without further ado, on with the show. Hello, Joshua Spiller. How's it going? Hey, George. Really good, Sam. Yeah, excellent. Um, yeah, um, we, we've just been really chewing the fat for like the past 15 minutes. We'll be talking about all sorts of things from Pokemon um, all the way to, to Mark Wade. Um, it's, it's been a lot of fun, a bit, quite a bit of uh, nice reminiscing about, uh, about Pokemon, actually. <laughs> yeah, it takes you back and it's still big today, so it defines a lot of our lives in one way or another. Yeah, and the shenanigans that used to go on on the playground and still do today. <laughs> Excellent. Um, but uh, yeah, no, Joshua, thank you so much for being on the podcast. It's a it's a real pleasure. Um, hey, and for so anybody, for me, um, oh, it's 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 great. And uh, for anybody that hasn't come across you just yet, mm. what do you do in the world of comics? So I'm a comics writer, no art skills at all, unfortunately, and um, I've written for a few publications, written for Future Quake originally, where a lot of people come through in uh, the UK, uh, Aces Weekly, the digital comic run by David Lloyd, um, and a few other places, Alterna Comics in America a few years ago, and um, essentially kind of like to write very, make each project very different to the last, so like the first project for aces weekly was kind of a contemporary sci-fi set in london just a couple of years down the road focusing on a female protagonist and kind of being like a biography of a fictional person and just seeing what that felt like as a story the second story was kind of like a zany sci-fi comedy set in the far future uh, very fast-paced kind of silly and with a grand scale to it and the third story was kind of set in uh, the ancient past kind of like a slightly mythic not i suppose it's just a dislocated time but it was almost the idea like if you could have like the maori civilization in new zealand and the viking civilization and if somehow representatives of those civilizations could have met somewhere Mm. what would that sort of collision of cultures maybe have been like in the form of like um kind of a dramatic action story and in a world where there was a mythology and the rules ran slightly different to this world uh yeah so each one was trying to make it very different basically and I'm um, just trying to work with new artists and different people along the way. Keeps it lively as well. So, um, yeah, that's my that's my stick, really. And at <laughs> the moment, yeah. um, got a Kickstarter, which has gone live in the last few days, for a comic called Cinnabore. So if you search on Kickstarter, it's Cinnabore 1, first issue. And it's me and an artist called Richard War and uh, the colourist Owen Watts and letterer Rob Jones. And essentially, it's an all-ages comic. It's kind of like an action-adventure. We'll have a bit of sci-fi, a bit of fantasy, um, and it's set in prehistoric times. And I just kind of, you know, the opening 
is that this sort of mystical meteor, mystical, mysterious meteor is hurtling towards Earth and it causes a rip above the sky and a young boy from the modern day falls through. It's a prehistoric past and the meteor sets up a couple of it triggers a couple of events into motion. And the story is about how the boy survives in that world. The sort of new best friend he meets who's a dinosaur and how their relationship evolves. Um, and the dinosaur is quite traumatized, so it's a strong bonding moment between them. And essentially, later on, you'll find out what the meteor was all about in later issues, hopefully, if they're made. But in this one, it's really about there's a big tyrant of the land, this monstrous T-Rex that's created by the meteor. And it's about how the boy Zeph and his best friend Ovi outwit and defeat this like very cool epic monster. Um, and so that's running at the moment. We've got like, you know, fingers crossed that that will be funded. But it's also, we're really proud of the comic, but actually the Kickstarter in itself is a bit of an experimentation because I've done a Kickstarter before uh, for a novel. So a bit of a different project. But this one, I'm kind of seeing if I can do some unusual with the normal economics of comics because essentially I think a lot of times, you know, comics are quite expensive these days to agree compared to how they used to be. Like, yeah. $3.99, something like that. And, you know, they have glossy production values and I can see what, where the expense comes from. But I also feel it's a bit off-putting and sometimes you want to just get something that's quite cheap and you feel it's good quality. You know, like in, like, say, the 60s or even the 30s. I mean, I'm talking before my birth here, so I'm just going what other people say. But, mm. you know, comics were very cheap and you could use spare change and get, like, this wonderful piece of art by brilliant creators. And I think yeah. there should be more... You can have expensive comics too, more luxurious products but mm-hmm. there should be cheap entry points as well so yeah. we were kind of digging into this and i uh, there's a company in america that prints their comics on newsprint as a kind of throwback to how comics were in the 30s and it allows them to make their prices really cheap like one dollar fifty so i was thinking i wonder if we could kind of do something like that uh and it led me to kind of research printing processes a bit and essentially that would have been a bit tricky because to use those kind of presses it tends to be for newspapers that are printed in like minimum of 50,000. And that wasn't, it's not the scales I'm working with at this point in my life. (laughs) So, um, so I looked into it a bit more and what it ended, did find this very interesting kind of specialist printer and they do lots of specialist magazines essentially. And included Mm. within that is kind of a supermarket, you know, the in-house supermarket magazines, like I don't know where listeners are in the world, but here there's like Waitrose, Sainsbury's, Tesco, in-house magazine. And they're sort of, you know, really, they're obviously quite, they're given away free by the supermarket, but they have, you know, lovely, vivid picture quality because it's all about food. It's meant to make you salivate and go buy their products. So the production values are good. So I went to this company uh, and said, well, what if I unusually went through you? How could the pricing work then? And sort Because of, they just use a different printing system. And essentially, mm. there is a way to make it very affordable. It relies on us having quite a decent number of sales so low paying customers right. are quite a lot of them not a lot though by the standards of a big comic company and it that would mean that we could do the 28 page comic with domestic shipping and most of the cost is domestic shipping yeah and we could do it all for two pounds so you're getting a comic shipped to your door 28 pages full color two pound the whole package so we're right. kind of seeing if this will work because if it does work then we can do more affordable comics and it just kind of seems like a win for everyone you know Obviously, as someone who's trying to progress their comic writing career, I do want to steadily make more and more of a living out of it. It gives me more time to dedicate to it. But Uh equally, you know, I think when you get to the nub of a lot of things or to do with writing, you kind of think, what's the bottom line here? I would rather, rather than be like 
very wealthy or make a lot of money from a small readership, which you can do in you know different fields. And say, if you're like a fine artist, you might have like a few people who support your work and they pay hundreds of pounds for it and make your living off it. But mm. I think the thing that would feel most meaningful at the end of the day is just knowing that lots of people are reading your work. And if they all just got a little bit of pleasure out of it, it all brightened their day a bit, you know, I think I feel like it would sort of end my life quite contentedly, knowing that had been the, the wave I'd ridden through life. So it's kind of just trying to foreground that and make it a good deal for everyone, hopefully. So that's running at the moment. That's the project. And if that interests you in like the idea, it'd be awesome if you could support it. A hundred percent. And again, that's uh, Cinevore, um, if you search on Kickstarter. And I should um, say the spelling, shouldn't I? Because obviously it's an unusual word. So yeah, go on. S-I-N-A-V-O-R-E. So kind of like carnivore, that word, but S-I-N-A at the start. Exactly. Um, and of course, all of those links are in the show notes, folks. So um, go go check out Cinevore on Kickstarter by clicking through there. And and also we'll have your uh, your Twitter and whatnot um in the show notes as well i assume i think you're on twitter aren't you Joshua? yeah 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 so that'd be there too that'd be cool excellent amazing um well uh all of that aside um unfortunately <laughs> um i've got some bad news for you um and, and just as things are, are, are starting to get back to normal um, <laughs> unfortunately <laughs> the sun has decided to do something really annoying and that is a solar storm um and it's created a, a solar storm reset so for anybody know um a solar storm um flare specifically is where the sun kicks out uh, basically an electromagnetic pulse um <laughs> and that kind of will wipe out all of the electronics until we can get them up and running again um for a considerable amount of time um so uh yeah, my, my que- first question for you, Joshua, is what is your action fan- plan for survival in this solar storm reset? Okay, so obviously, you know, any apocalypse planning, you can't take it lightly. So I've given a serious thought. Excellent. So from the article you sent me, I'm thinking, it seems to say the main things that you'll be hit by, a lot of them, you know, seem like I could live with it. Because again, this is a sort of yeah. temporary apocalypse. It's going to wipe out a lot of electricity and infrastructure and society. But we can yeah. probably salvage it over time. But yeah. the things we would lose, we'd lose electricity. Okay, you know, I can read by candle, just operate by daylight. You know, it's not the end of the world. We would lose uh, perishable food. So we're going to be going to tinned foods for a little bit, lose some meds. We'd lose our sewage sort of system. I mean, that's really bad. But then again, yeah. <laughs> our society, and it's going to be grim. I might go live in the mountains for a bit. But these are all things that you feel you could get through. But the killer one, from what it said, was that it was like the water supplies will be damaged. We won't be able to get water in yeah. the same way. Yeah. So obviously that is an essential. It does need to be thought through. So it's a hard one, isn't it? Where are you going to get your water from? So essentially I've got, I've got two main plans. See what you think. So the first one, I'm like, well, if all the water's gone, I'm going to need some sort of endless supply of water or of liquid, at least, to keep me going. And one which people won't be expecting. So they won't have hoarded it already or guarded it. And I remember places like, you know, Pizza Hut, where if you went there and you got a meal, they'd give you endlessly refillable drinks, wouldn't they? <laughs> I just thought, well, it must have been magic. This endlessly refillable thing would never run out of liquid. So if I can get down there immediately as soon as the solar flare hits, rip one That's of those amazing. out and be on my merry way, I think for stars, that's a pretty safe bet that I'm not going to be running out of liquid and I'll be some sort of you know, new ruler of this landscape, what a commodity to have, this endless energy <laughs> supply. 
But on the off chance that, you know, they've been duping us somehow and it wasn't really refillable forever, I think either I'd find some sort of natural water supply and build some sort of fort out of, like, baked bean cans and spam cans and sweet corn, and that would be what I'd be living on. Or if the fresh water supplies were already seized by others and it was a kind of war for resources among the populace, I'm not saying everyone would turn on each other, you just don't know then the most radical way I can think to get water is that I would head to a mountainous area, somewhere which would have a lot of rainfall anyway, maybe like the Lake District, mm. go up there high, and then go so high that you're kind of among the low-level clouds a lot of the time. And sometimes I'd just be able to drink the clouds around me. But what I was thinking to make it a bit more cool and action is I'll bring a hang glider with me. And I will have learned to hang glide by this point. I just sense it myself. Amazing. And I will jump off the mountain and I will sail through the clouds with my mouth open. And I'll just spend the days nibbling clouds. And I'll use the hand gliding to survey the landscape and see when society is returning to normal. And then, you know, come back down to earth, it'll be fine. That's how I would sort of deal with the water issue, which I think is the key problem. Amazing. That is excellent. Um, I just lo- 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 love the idea of you on it in a hand glider, just <laughs> nibbling at all the clouds, like like a basking shark or something. Yeah, and it's not the normal image of an apocalypse, is it? So I feel like, you know, yeah. <laughs> Certainly <laughs> not. And I like that image. Is it, is it, that hasn't definitely hasn't come up before. So... Um, <laughs> Yeah, whilst you whilst you are gliding through the uh, through the air above above the mountains of the Lake mm. District, um, getting all of the moisture you can from the clouds, um, you start thinking about comics yeah. um, and reminiscing. Always do when I'm hand gliding. It's always oh, like, put me off my course. game. So, yeah, like, exactly. <laughs> and uh, the first question you ask yourself is, what's the first comic you remember enjoying? So the first one, this is not like uh, the most revered comic in modern times, but are you familiar with like um, the Spider-Man clone saga at all? I, I, I wasn't, no. So it's like, so the way I came across this, so this is about the time I got into comics, so it's what got me in, you know, I don't know if I probably read maybe the, I don't even know if I did the odd comic when I was particularly young, I don't remember coming across them particularly. There must, no, no, there were some annuals actually when I was younger. This, Yeah, so this is more like, from my teenagers when I got read comics properly and I kind of stayed with them since. But what I remember is I came back from school one day, my mum had been to a charity shop and she'd seen like two or three of this comic called uh, Astonishing Spider-Man, which still runs to this day in the UK. It's a different title now. But what it was was a 76-page monthly comic that reprints the American comics and it was like three or four months behind the US. So it's quite a good value because it'd be a couple two two pounds or something or two pound forty, but you would get three comics worth in there. And nice. normally it would be two very recent comics, like kind of up to the present day roughly, and mm. then one uh, historic comic, like you know Spider-Man one four seven or the first appearance of Captain Britain or the first print of Lizard, whatever. So you've got a bit of comic history as well as the more modern stuff. Um, so it's got me two or three of those, and I just remember being like. You know, it's that thing that like, most people have when they get into comics, don't they? Especially with like the big universes like Marvel and DC, where there's just so much going on, so many figures, you don't know what they are, you don't know how they interrelate. All the rules are like kind of crazy because everyone's got these different superpowers, and there's just a lot to get your head around. It's quite intoxicating. And so, and at the time, I just thought this was this amazing. I actually, I reread bits, you know, recently, and they look different to my eyes now, a bit older. But I remember, um, yeah, it's just there's tons of mysteries thrown into it. And there are a lot of characters I had no familiarity with 
through like the Spider-Man cartoon series. So there was this character called the Jackal and they were like, uh, he cloned Spider-Man years ago. And now they don't know if the Spider-Man we've all been reading for years has been a clone all along. What? Who's this Jackal character? <laughs> and Gwen Stacy had been resurrected and was she real? And there was this character called the, I think it was called uh, yeah, the Scryer. And it was like someone wearing a kind of skull-ish mask, like a, you know, almost like a screen mask, a bit of that sort of face. Right. With yeah. a big hood and he looked like seven foot tall. And um, and he was some mysterious watch. He was always watching what was going on from the shadows, you know. What was his game? And there was someone else called Kane. And he turned out to be another Spider-Man clone, but you didn't know it at the time. He was just violent and he was completely covered by his costume. So it was just a lot of like crazy questions. And um, I remember getting hooked into that. And then so I bought two or three of those comics from the charity shop. I said, these are really good. Let's go back and get more. Um, and so we got into the Batmobile and hurtled down there. And there was like 20 like 20 more in that secondhand shop, bought them all, read them, and then kind of just continued reading comic sense and probably, yeah, then started to get into other things like Daredevil and found some graphic novels throughout the Forbidden Planet. But it all kind of stems from finding that. So, yeah, that's the first one I have a vivid memory of, like, this is really good. And was that just a case of picking it up at your local news agent? Uh, so the, the, the first ones I got from the secondhand shop, the subsequent ones were just always like WH Smith or something. So they would come out monthly. And, you just get, and so they would have, like, Astonishing X-Men, uh, mm. sorry, Astonishing Spider-Man. Mm. They'd have an X-Men one. They'd have a Wolverine and Gambit. And they tended to fl- tended to be new titles would come and go a little bit. So there was, like, one that was Mighty Wilds Marvel, which was predominantly Daredevil, Hulk, and one other character, whatever they wanted to focus on at that time. And that was because that was around the time, like, the Ben Affleck Daredevil film came out and the um, right. Eric Banner, I guess, Hulk, like, 2003. <laughs> so they were those kind of, like... <laughs> Yeah, so it was like um, all those titles. It's funny, actually, because they would also have like little news features within them very occasionally because these films were starting to happen. And so yeah. I guess they were like kind of hype press releases to a degree. But you get these little snippets mm. of like the Spider-Man films, who's been cast. Uh, so, you know, it just felt like it was like a little window in time when all the superhero was just burgeoning into existence. Yeah, um, and yeah. Them, them figuring out how to do it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> definitely. Yeah, what became just like the Leviathan, the juggernaut is today. Precisely. Um, excellent. And so at this time, um, were you trying to create your own stories? So I remember writing fiction from when I was like six or seven. You know, I mean, right. just I remember like the storybooks, and it would be I used to be into a series called Animorphs a lot. So okay. which, which was like um, like prose fiction. So it would normally be like kids turning into animals. So I feel like I don't have any vivid memories of, and certainly not writing comics because like I said, I can't really do art. And I suppose I could have just mm. done my own drawings even if they were really scrappy and rubbish. But I'm trying to think when, I feel like probably my first comics were writing scripts and was actually more when I was like 15 or something. Right. Something like that a little bit later on. But yeah. I think I would have been, what I would have been really engaged with is just, you know, when you get the behind the scenes process thing. So the times when mm. you bought a graphic novel and you sit at the back, maybe an Alan Moore script or a Neil Gaiman one or whatever, and just trying to think, oh, okay, this is how it works and structure. Because there is oh, no, I know a lot of writers, I suppose, do do comics scripts in roughly a similar way, but there is no one way, is there? You can go from no. writer to writer and they all have their own, really, it's just whatever yeah. they find clear and works for them. Exactly. Um, yeah. yeah, so I'd say the writing came later on, but it was obviously, it was something that excited my imagination. I thought, oh, and I, I suppose that definitely the thing of like, I want to be, a novelist and comic book writer those are the two foremost things that was mm. that was there very early on really that's excellent um, and how do you find kind of 
your how your writing process differs between novel writing and comic book writing um i would say a lot of it's quite similar probably because the initial right. point of like having <laughs> it's like all right there's nothing there's to to learn here um <laughs> so there's like a, there's a certain point where you know initially it's just come up with an idea like and then thinking how the ideas would connect and a plot would develop and all that can be quite similar but i think mm-hmm. there's obviously the step where once you've got the information i know i want to convey breaking it down into the pages and then panels for that pacing to do that in a way that I find satisfying, it's quite like a finickety job to a degree. I don't know how you find it, but sometimes yeah. you're like, you know, because you don't want a page to be too spare necessarily, but equally yeah. you don't want it to feel compressed and you want the rhythm to be nice. I suppose you yeah. get quicker at that over time, but that feels always very specific. Yeah. And, um, and also the, the the page turn as well. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, right. You've always got that in mind. Yeah, yeah. So right. I mean, it's almost like it goes a little bit more towards poetry just in the sense i feel like you're working with informal structures more you know yeah. a nov- unless you're writing for a short story of a designated word count this a prose story can be as long as you wish it to be really can't it and yeah. you're not it's all being just typed by you so there's not necessarily any budget concerns or how much work it creates for other people um whereas yeah comics even like the number of words in a panel you know sometimes you're shaving words off little bits it doesn't feel cluttered and I, yeah. you know the collaboration angle as well Mm. And what I try to do, I suppose, look, as a novel, you know it's all, or a process, you know it's all you, whatever is on the page, that is, is as you wanted it to be. Mm-hmm. Whereas in a comic, you see different approaches, don't you? There's like that Marvel method, like the old school yeah. one, where they would kind of give a very loose plot line to the artist. The artist would do most of the work, really, and then the writer would come yeah. and have the dialogue. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Whereas, and I think, and sometimes it feels like some writers, they turn out with not, especially like, you know, comics from certain eras, like the 90s, say, you can sometimes tell there's not really a lot of detail thought massively in the story. It's almost like just a setup for visuals. It's going bam, yeah. bam, bam, and quite an energised read. Mm. Um, but I try to, so it's almost like they're saying, I'll give you a framework to ask for a bit of a scaffolding for a story, but you go, it's mainly going to be your thing. But I kind of think it's nice on a personal level when you're writing, you're never going to experience it really as the reader does, are you? Because if you hand someone hands back the comic you wrote, you kind of know it intimately already. It's an experience fresh. And you associate it with the memories of maybe writing or the thought process going through your head. So you're not going to experience your own story ever normally. So the, I think the best time, the best way you are going to experience it is if you just sit down and imagine it as mercifully as you can. That's your peak experience of the story you're making. And if you're writing a story you like and you find exciting, that's a good bit of process. It takes longer than if you're just almost providing what you think is a sketch of a story for someone. But you make it really good for you. It's more rewarding experience. And then when I feel I've done my job to the max and I've had that experience I've enjoyed, then giving it to us and just saying, you know, do it your way. Do it if you think if you've got a way to make it better or whatever, go with that, because yeah. that's the nature of collaboration. But at least I know I've done everything at my end, I think, to give the project the best possible chance of being what I wanted it to be. That's fantastic. Um, and then do you do, you, um, do any story structure work? or anything yeah what do you mean so like before writing the script itself or... yeah 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 so at the outline stage um do you actually kind of use any story formal story structure formulas you know, yeah do you know it's interesting because for the novel i've written i did that was like that was sort of three acts and broke it down just because when the story's that big i think it's very easy for the narrative tension to slacken at some point so like maybe you have a great beginning but it kind of tails off a bit or slow beginning, building to a good crescendo, whatever. But, you know, to keep it taut all the way through, 
I broke that down into three classic structures. And it was like at the end of every act, and this is what I was told by a teacher who I really admired on my um, creative writing course I went to at uni. He gave some very practical advice. I don't know, some listeners might have heard of him because he's very famous. It's a sort of sci-fi writer called China Mievel, who's won um, like the Arthur C. Clarke Prize, big sci-fi prize in the UK. Anyway, he was saying, might as well you just, you know, just be very, um, make it so that it's because it's a classic story thing to do, but it kind of makes the job of writing easier, especially yeah. when you're first getting to grips with it, is yeah. at the end of each act, have something happen that kind of shakes up the whole narrative and almost refreshes it. So in a way, you're almost writing three interconnected segments that form a story, but each has their own life. And if you can get to the end of there, it will refresh and sort of re-energise, I guess, the reader's interest in it to a degree. So over a big project like that, totally did have a very set story structure. And I think that was critical. Otherwise, I would have gone into the problems that I worried about, the energy slipping out of it at certain points and struggling to keep it there. But with comics, I think I do breakdowns like when I pitched it to publishers and they've mm-hmm. tended to be like Aces Weekly works in three pages a week. So very tight. Um, yeah. And even the five pages like Future Quake, the very tight little narratives. So I suppose because they're more self-contained, it was more like it almost like naturally broke itself down. I didn't have to break down five pages much. Yeah. I just tried to I tried to make sure every page feels like it's got. Um, well, I don't know what I'd say, but like a strong, energized idea and it's almost just expressing one idea per page so it has room to breathe i think that's Mm -hmm. the thing that's one of the lessons i thought i learned on the way is initially maybe trying to overcram things not knowing how much space allows you to say and it's still Mm -hmm. i still find it hard to work out but i can get it to a point now where i'm pleased with it um and with the three page things in aces weekly you knew that every three pages of this 21 page story some people don't write to this to be fair some people just write it as a 21 page story and the breaks are almost arbitrary you know, once the story's collected, it will just be a smooth 21 pages. But I thought it's a good discipline to try and make little cliffhangers there, particularly mm. in the sort of the sci-fi story I mentioned earlier, which is called Time Fracture, and it's a bit silly, and I wanted it to feel wacky and exciting. So there it was almost like, right, I know that every chapter is going to be very short, and I want to get to a point where the reader's like, oh, what's going to happen next? And so it kind of imposed the structure on me, if you see what I mean. Um, but I do break down... I would break down like for for 21 for Senate or because that's over 20 pages. That is the first really long form comic script I've written where Mm. there wasn't breaks imposed upon me. I was going to write it. The way I I broke it down was just kind of knowing what the story was and then just making sure each page sounded strong and solid. So I knew what every page was doing. Occasionally little things had to be adjusted. And if it felt like to read those, you know, it might be like I was writing them numbers say one to 20 down the side of a page something like that and i'd write like one sentence of what's going on in each page and if it felt like everyone was strong and that's why i know the whole plot i know everything that's going in there is integral if they all felt strong and they all felt like they'd you know be a compelling page of reading then i just sort of follow that structure so i do that breakdown ahead of time and that guides the process really afterwards nice um because yeah no that's that's the type of thing that i i recommend to people um as your your mentor said there um kind of having kind of set structures um really helps with you to kind of decipher the story so what sort of what sort of approach do you feel then always have the structure that you turn to or yeah what do you do oh well there's one specifically so it's the um eight point story structure 
Um, it, it goes by a few names. Um, yeah, eight point story structure, uh, Golden Circle. Yeah, Kevin <laughs> Stewart. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so no. What, um, what are it, the eight I feel I've heard of the eight points, but I don't know it. Yeah. So what would they? Tell you what, what. They sort of do there to make sure I do it justice. <laughs> I'm going to bring it up. And basically, I use this every time um, I, I start out with a with an idea. Yeah. Um, and then I go to um, this eight point story arc, and um, then kind of input like the the outline within that and have it yeah. follow that so um here we go so it starts off with stasis okay so you know kind of the the usual environment that perhaps the the main character is in then there's yeah. a trigger yeah um and then there's the quest always a good part of the story yeah exactly start the quest <laughs> um and you know it doesn't actually have to be a quest um, no, for anybody out like there a journey of some sort. yeah exactly a journey of some sort um a, a change or just something they have to accomplish yeah. um and then a surprise happens uh, so something unexpected that you know is is putting a, a an obstacle in their way yeah. um then a critical choice mm. um so from that obstacle that's in their way they have to make a, a critical choice where they have to decide you know to do one thing and they'll get that benefit but if they do that the other thing then it's gonna you know be damaging yeah um, in so some there's way like a, there's a weight to the choice they're making exactly um then there's a there's a climax um as in you know they achieve the quest that they they set out to to try and accomplish um but obviously that comes with consequences um, and that's when you get this reversal mm. um so the consequences of that climax but then you know there's a resolution um after that as well um, okay so that there's kind of a, um a satisfaction there for for the reader um or viewer because th- th- this is famously used by dan Harmon, um okay um and uh justin royland in in every episode of rick and morty oh, really? <laughs> basically they yeah they do yeah yeah i mean dan, dan Harmon is like a, a big proponent of of, of that and, and that's what he used for community and and everything like that oh, um wow. and you know you, you just use this structure you, well yeah yeah it certainly works for him and, yeah. and and that's the that's the point is that you know you just got to find something that works for you i find this particularly useful for my style of writing yeah. um but uh you know you just you just got to look out there um for story structures that that you think you'd benefit from and that, that can work with you know the way that you think um yeah. But the, having that structure there is really, really useful, particularly at the beginning, um, trying to work out, you know, story beats and stuff yeah, like that. Definitely. I suppose the nine point plan is just doing a teaser for the sequel after the credits, isn't it? That's point nine. Yeah, no, 100%. 100%. Yeah, <laughs> totally. Um, so, yeah, leaving it on a cliffhanger. And, you know, you, you obviously, you know, you can be fairly loose with that, with that structure as well. Yeah. Um, often... Um, 
what can happen is that you know sequels will start um at, at the trigger for instance yeah. they wouldn't necessarily start on the stasis or anything like that right. um and you know even like further down the eight points in, in sequels and stuff like that apparently um but it's it's just somewhere to start isn't it just to it start is. wrapping your head and around yeah stories. especially if it, everything just feels like abstract or you know there's nothing to kind of tan nothing solid in your story to really hang on to and build around because you generally yeah. probably need some fundamental building block don't you then it gives you that i think what you're saying like where you find a structure that suits you is good because say like the structure i use the three act thing and yeah. i guess you do this too from what you said if if you know if you're putting all the pieces in place and it's working well but you're saying actually this bit should be shorter than is recommended or this bit should go because that would be better here then you just adapt the structure organically as your story comes together and it gets a bit more of its it still gets that unique identity a little bit really yeah definitely um and uh, i always go off of what george rr R. martin says in terms of of you know the spectrum of writers that are out there you know some are gardeners some are architects um and you know the everybody's on that spectrum somewhere um so what do you mean what architects Planners oh so uh, yeah architects are like the planners and yeah do the whole story structure thing yeah. and then gardeners are just you know they just start writing and kind of let the story flow and george rr R. martin himself you know says that he's a gardener through and through obviously <laughs> <laughs> um but then you know you got you got the lights of stephen king who's like a total architect yeah. um you know um and uh, i'm more of an architect than i am a gardener um and although I, I I do kind of you know plan it all out through that type of story structure thing, I I do allow to do what you were just saying there in terms of do a bit of gardening where you know you can you can remove things you can prune things let's keep going yeah. down the gardening analogy <laughs> um, and you know cut stuff off yeah. and and uh, add some nice. Um, uh, you know, sunflowers here and there, and all that jazz. Yeah. <laughs> I suppose uh, I, like one of my probably my favourite novel is written by someone who'd be in the gardener category, right? So, you know, yeah, brilliant work to come from any manner of doing creative writing, but it's, it just seems like it's so much more work. When because the thing about if you have the structure in advance is you can be kind of efficient in the writing as a rule because you know everything yeah. that you write's going in it and it's part of the finished thing. When you, I get that when they're writing this kind of keyboard, there's that acceleration. This could go anywhere, and I'm just following my impulse moment to moment. But then yeah. when you have to go back and you've got this, some days were good, some days weren't, some days the stories weren't in a route that didn't lead anywhere. And you've yeah. got to then prune that into something that looks oh, like yeah. it was always intended to be that final shape, which just seems like tons more extra work. Sort of intimidates me a bit, really, I think. Oh. Same, same. Um, hence, yeah, why well, I, I really try and do as, do as much architecture as i can um and you know you can let the gardening happening happen as you go but yeah, yeah as you say it, it kind of it's it's less intimidating as a project if you have that structure there up front yeah. and then also you know that you're going to be hitting those beats as you go um but you know you can always adapt it as as you go but yeah i'd be really intimidated going into a story without kind of a fully fledged plan <laughs> beforehand <laughs> definitely yeah maybe when you've been doing it for like 20 years or something like for yeah. more say that and sometimes you get yeah. restless and you feel like you just absorb this stuff so well then you can almost trust right. your instincts to work things out for you but so. yeah i yeah. definitely enter as an architect excellent uh now uh heading back to our hand glider mm. um the next question that crops <laughs> up is what's the funniest comic that you've read 
So I would say it's by the man I just mentioned, Alan Moore, who's obviously more famous for his like more serious or dramatic voice. But I think he is funny. He's one of the funniest writers I've come across. I think really, he's really just has <laughs> lots of really great lines. I think it's you know his his uh his dramatic writing is known for being on point and so precise and intricate. But his comic writing is similar, just banging a high quality. So um so there's a, some. There's, he did, um, I don't know if people know this, probably do, but he did a collection, it's kind of his own universe, really, called the ABC Comics in the 90s. Maybe a bit in the early noughties as well. It might be in the early noughties. Um, I've not come on as this story, and I can't be sure. But he did, uh, so he did like his own kind of Wonder Woman thing, which was Promethea, and his own uh, kind of Supermanish figure, I guess, or heroic figure, which was Tom Strong. Lots of things. Anyway, one of the comics was called Tomorrow's Stories, and it was an anthology comic. And again, it had different genres in it, and there was each set, each character would be probably kind of relate to a certain genre. So there was like the kind of hardboard detective character. There was the more kind of uh, sort of erotic female investigator, so it was more the erotic genre. Um, and then there were some really funny comics in it. So the two that kind of loom large, there's one called Jack B. Quick, which was about um, a boy inventor. So it's that kind of classic, that archetype. And um, he used to, I mean, the stories are really bonkers and imaginative and i heard him alan moore say once like he's not sort of so he can write regularly because you have to have such a peculiar idea as the seed for those stories that he couldn't do them to a regular deadline it's just if they come then he'll write them up but there was some lines that just always like have like an endless charm for me really so there's one where you know jack be quick he lives in the midwest he kind of um i guess you would think like you know small midwestern american town something like that those kind of values but he's this genius inventor and there's one comic that opens with him and his like a local friend and they're looking at ants through a magnifying glass. And the intro for the comic, the captions by the narrator, it just says um, uh, something like, ah, childhood, those golden times when we were carefree, before we became hairy and lumpy and sordid, before we learned the facts of life. And that's the title for the comic. I just think hairy, lumpy and sordid is a funny way to describe like post-pubescent people, but that's got a real appeal. Um, and there's, a, there's another character in that comic called First American, and that's kind of a send-up of a sort of Captain America archetype. But, um, I, you know, again, just really funny. There's like a, there's an extended one issue is like just a whole Tarantino parody that's done really well. A um, lot of funny little lines kind of riffing on, uh, you know, like the, the big comic, um, like... Uh, tacky or gimmicky things and it's always it's always self-known about the world around it or comics and they're always eight page stories so they're very tight um but it's just brilliant i just remembered another jack b quick line that sort of stuck in my head where again it's the opening line of one of the issues but it says something like um they say um time is both a great healer and that it waits for no man so it's sort of like louis pasteur on a skateboard that's just the opening line it's like it's just bonkers you know it's very fun. So, um, yeah, I'll go for Tomorrow's Stories by Alan Moore. It's a funny comic. Fantastic. Uh, now, uh, changing gears, uh, okay. what's the saddest comic that you've read? So, saddest. So, actually, um, well, I, I, I heard someone else on one of your shows say Mouse, and, I, you know, I suppose that has to take the crown, really, because, obviously, that relates to very serious real-world events. But yes. just the, <laughs> it's hard to beat that one, you know, for... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> sure. Um, but I would say another comic that 
Well, probably the one that came to my mind first, I was trying to think, oh, what, like, moved me? Because in a way, I suppose, also, when you go into a Holocaust, to a degree, you're prepared for sadness. So maybe something that catches you off guard leaves a different kind of impression in your head. Um, and so one that sticks out a lot, I had to look up the issue number, but I'm pretty sure this is right, is I think Amazing Spider-Man or Spider-Man comic issue 248. And it's, I think it was a short story within the larger comic. I read it in a collection of, like, it was a graphic novel of, you know, the best Spider-Man stories. But essentially, it's, um, you know, there will be a spoiler at the end of this, so it's, it's quite a spoiler. <laughs> yeah, you know, tune out for a couple of minutes, but it's a twist at the end that makes it poignant, where the story begins with a newspaper article. So you're seeing this clipping about this little boy called Timothy, and the article's written by quite a jaunty journalist, and he's saying how the fascinating thing about Timothy is he has a Spider-Man obsession. And then you see Spider-Man visit this little boy and the boy's very cute and Spider-Man's like showing how his webbing works. And I think um, maybe he, does he take him for a ride around? No, probably take, but you know, he's kind of showing who all Spider-Man is and where he came from. The boy's showing all the endless things he's collected about Spider-Man, even like, you know, very bizarre memorabilia, like maybe Spider-Man's fought a bank robbery and this little boy has then gone to the crime scene the next day and taken the bullet capsules embedded in the walls that didn't hit Spider-Man and kept them in an album. Wow. And so, and, and through this story, you've got these newspaper clippings telling you about Timothy, and you know, and it just seems like it's tying it together well. And then at one point, Spider Man's about to leave Timothy, and Timothy says, Before you go, Spider Man, can you tell me who you are? He says, I can't do that. If I did, everyone in my life would be in danger. He's like, Please, I'll never tell anyone. So then you see there's a moment of conflict, and Spider Man reveals his Peter Parker. And I can't really remember the first time I read it, but presumably at that point, you're who is this kid? Why is he spilling all these secrets? This, this is a terrible idea. And um, they have a sort of a poignant moment where they hug each other. And then Spider-Man swings away and he lands on the wall. It turns out it's, Timothy's been quite a sort of a large complex. He lands on the wall of the build that surrounds the building. And you see that it says um, on a brass plaque that it's a cancer centre. And then you finally at the end see the end of the article, the last few lines, and it says Timothy's only got a couple of weeks left to live because he's been diagnosed with leukemia. And hopefully if Spider-Man is out there reading this article, he'll come visit this boy. And then so the whole thing clicks into place. Yeah. It becomes very sad, you know. So that, I thought, is a, is a memorable, well, very well done, sad comic. Actually, no. you know, quite a nice thing about it is just because it, cause it is just a relationship between a kid and a superhero. Yeah. There's no action. There's no drama. It's almost like it kind of just boils down inside a dynamic of what a superhero represents to a kid. Yeah. You know, like if they were on, they could just play exactly. with you and be a source of excitement. Yeah, so there's something quite pure about it as well. Oh, no, yeah, 100%. Um, and that, that's such a nice way to do it. Um, mm. As you say, to kind of show what a superhero represents to a kid and, you know, what it can mean to them. And, and it's it's a nice kind of, it's a different way um, to to present superheroes and do a superhero comic yeah you you say no action and it's so nice when it's kind of it's such a confusing storyline right up until the end when there's the reveal yeah and you do realize and then it all comes together suddenly it's a great thing when when everything just clicks into place very neatly yeah hard thing to do is it because sometimes you might have a twist you think oh but there are these like maybe there'd be a dangling old question or two that could ruin the moment a little bit so when you can just get it very neat, yeah, very satisfying to read. 
Fantastic. Uh, now, um, back to the hang glider. And the uh, <laughs> next question that comes up, um, it's amazing how long you're going on this hang glider. I know, I know. I've um, so many obstacles and the, the rocks brilliant. are really throwing me off. Yeah, yeah totally. Um, I think you found some thermals or something and you can kind of make <laughs> your way back up, can't you, in thermals? Yeah, I'm just those. Yeah. yeah. Um, what's the scariest comic you've picture me the same way, by the way. I imagine I'll be the sort of hang glider that thermals. So I'm glad you <laughs> yeah, that they can do all of that. <laughs> some people doubt me and i don't know why sam but yeah, <laughs> no chance 100 percent confident 100 percent confident <laughs> um but uh yeah what's the scariest comic that you've read scariest so i initially thought of something i got i've sort of in two minds slightly so one would be uh from hell which is again an alan moore comic in a different vein this time but <laughs> so that's about the jack the ripper murders and there's an extended sort of mutilation sequence of a dead body. It's done very forensically, but it's meant to be, it's based on what I think how the real, well, I'm sure really, was the real dead body of one of Jack the Ripper's victims, how it was found. So that it was mutilated after the fact. And it's just yeah. a very cold kind of forensic extended sequence where it's claustrophobic and it's going on for a protracted period of time. So that is disturbing, partly just because it doesn't, you know, I mean, it's not like, it's not sensitively graphic at all. It doesn't overdo anything. But that's almost a slightly more chilling vibe that it's going for, that we're just going to take a cold look at the real sort of violence that does sometimes happen. So that's disturbing. That's a decent, that's a good contender. And then the other ones I thought actually occurred to me today of um, scary comics. There was, um, have you ever read Invisibles by Grant Morrison? No, no, I haven't. Excuse me. Well, yeah, do you know, I was actually... I didn't really ultimately like the whole thing so much, but it does have a few really like ch- chilling moments or stuff. He's like, oh, that is disturbing. It's a creepy idea. And there's one issue, issue seven, which mm. kind of works as a standalone story. There's bits in it which are connecting to the larger narrative, but you can read a lot of it in and of itself. And um, oh, it's just it's just very dark and weird. It's there's it basically the, the opening premise is that um, it's almost like I think there's a banker a duke, a, um, who else? a judge, and one other authority figure I've forgotten, and you see that they've hung up the kind of the accoutrements of their job, so like the wig or the um, banknotes or whatever. So these are like symbols, and they, they put them on mannequins, and it's like they've divested themselves of those things. And they're in a castle in this wintry setting, and the walls are very thick, and it's surrounded by a moat, and it's thick snow around, no one's going to disturb them. And they've basically just um, kidnapped like uh, some some young women, some girls, some men, uh, some prostitutes, whatever. And it's basically just how depraved they can be for the next four months where they're going to be locked in this castle because they know there's going to be no one to stop them. And just sort of some lines that come out of that and some scenes that are genuinely disturbing. I mean, from another comic in the run, because I don't want to say any of the ones in that one, partly because they're just a bit, they're a bit gruesome, you know. But there's another moment that will give you a sort of a sense of the kind of darkness I'm talking about. But there's another issue where there's uh, these kinds of, you know, like the classic English hunting gear, they're like the riding caps and the red jodhpurs or whatever. Sure, yeah. And they're these upper class aristocratic villains. I think they're, I can't really remember now, but I think they're kind of ambassadors or they are members of this alien, tr- other dimensional race that's coming to destroy things on this planet. But they have a servant of some sort, and the servant turns out to be working for the characters you're essentially following, like this kind of terrorist cell, but for the good guys. 
and um, and they get him to a point where they, they have his daughter, they have him there, and they say, unless you tell us everything you know about these um, about the people you're working with, we will kill your daughter. And he panics, and he oh he goes fine, I'll tell you everything. And they say, by the way, you'll tell us everything you know, and they will know that you've told us that this is all part of the deal. And he says, fine, I'll tell you everything I know. And then they shoot his daughter and they say, we already knew everything you could possibly tell us. We just wanted to show you how pathetic you are. Oh, my God. I'm sorry, like, kind of like, they, you know, it's quite hard. That's dark. Put, yeah, That's exactly. Dark. And, and it almost like, just, yeah, really put, puts his finger on an idea that really just, just turned your stomach a little bit like, oh, that's so bleak. So, um, yeah, so that's, yeah, on an idea that probably, from hell is almost like physically more, disturbing what is in the real world but in terms of that bleak ideas that invisible's comics number seven is worse in its way if you know what i mean in a, in, in a television yeah way. definitely like psychologically dark yeah kind of way just, like to go to that place you know yeah exactly even to read it you kind of feel a bit dirty afterwards it is well put together yeah. a story i think it's you know it's, it's a good story but i was wondering like, it's been the mind state where you produce that in terms of writing and i feel like it kind of been in a great place right then when you put that to paper Definitely. Um, yeah, no, it is. It's really disturbing when you do read a story um, where it's that dark. I'm trying to remember the name of the uh, of the Mark Miller um, comic. Um, oh, this maybe rings a bell. What is? Oh, gosh, I'm trying to search for it right now. Okay. Um, uh, in it's not Inferno. Um, what is it? Was it a particularly disturbing one then? Yeah, no, it was just one, um, the one where you've got, uh, he's basically um, in a white suit. He's like a white, um, white suited Batman, but evil. Oh, I, oh, oh yeah. gosh, that's going to do my head in. Sorry, <laughs> listeners. I should, I should, I should know this straight off, off the top of my head. But for some reason, my, my brain has gone. It's amazing because we're originally going to make the whole show about this character. So the fact you've forgotten, it's just so embarrassing. Yeah, I know. It's, it's really <laughs> embarrassing. Yeah, absolutely <laughs> terrible. Um, here we go. Free it it's, I'm going to kick myself as soon as I see it. Um, I'm just Get your going ears through. ready, listeners, for the sound his, of this ki- kick. His, his, his complete catalogue. Yeah. Um, <laughs> oh, <laughs> Sam, what are you like? While you're um, looking, I'll just say I remember I had this interesting thing once. I was talking to someone who'd worked in children's TV, and he right. was saying that a lot of people who work in horror film and TV are really nice people, right? It's like they've yeah. purged all their darkness in their art. And he said a lot of people who yeah. work in children's TV are absolutely horrible. So you can't, yeah, you know. This is a funny way of looking at it, but I can believe that's true. Really, you kind of—it's cathartic, isn't it? If you put a lot, obviously there are some twisted horror things where I think that people would just be twisted too. But a lot of time, it probably does them a lot of psychological good to express it in a story. Yeah, to actually get it out. Yeah. Um, rather, rather than—I mean, not that you've got these actual thoughts, but like suppressing kind of you know darker thoughts. Yeah. And uh, yeah, to even like just exercise that. Um, exactly. as Ace Ventura did exercise the demons <laughs> um, like oh my god day, I'm normally sort of pretty happy and upbeat but I don't remember my dreams very often 
but frequently no. when I do, they're quite dark. And I'm like, well, maybe it's like sifting out all the darkness in the night. It's like the garbage compactor or something. Chucks it out so in daytime. I'm like, hey, it's all good thoughts. So you've got to have some <laughs> sort of purging process, I think, somewhere in there. 100%. Have yeah, you had any joy with this comic or is it is it haunting you already? I haven't. Oh, rubbish. Are you sure okay. these weren't your own depraved thoughts that you've sort of maybe maybe i made it all up maybe i made it all up that's it i reckon you're right um (laughs) but uh, yeah whilst whilst i'm still searching this um (laughs) let's move on to my favorite question and uh, that is what is your favorite cover favorite cover so there are a lot of really great comic covers obviously aren't there but i still and i do have massive massive affection for the really corny ones or not you know the older ones where they would have the dialogue on the front of some sort like i was in a comic store a week or so ago and i picked up i can't remember it was like an old dc comic from the it might be the eternals or something like jack kirby in the 70s or 80s but on the front of this graphic novel it had about four crazy looking characters you know crazy as in like outer space outlandish get up riding some crazy vehicle towards you the reader and they're like the dialogue that came from their mouth as they did this it was like and it was this like green zooming background behind them it just said um uh get on the boom tube reader if you dare (laughs) so so, like wonderfully calling but um but in terms of just the composition and the visual it's very classic but i would say uh amazing fantasy 15 the first cover of spider-man on or in a similar vein fantastic pool one so both done by jack kirby but just because I think you see these things kind of like pastiche a decent amount, you know, the people have done their riffs on them for the front covers of other comics or just mimic them because they're doing a one-off piece of art, but they never, they never really seem to lose their energy or the sense that like they, they still give that bit of a buzz when you look at them. And I think that just shows some um, amazing integrity. What do you say? Some amazing integrity in terms of quality that they just still shine through. It's like that is somehow exactly what it should be so um yeah i'd go for those two excellent um and yeah so with amazing fantasy uh issue 15 Mm. um so it's it is very dynamic so spider-man is carrying somebody i don't know is that is that a a character or is it just some guy it's just some guy isn't it it's just yeah some guy who's really landed in the limelight and he's made perfect background character made a whole career out of it yeah I saw, when I was first getting into comics, did you ever know of, like, Wizard magazine? No, no, no. So that was, like, it kind of, I think it sort of died with the internet, really, you know, like one of the print publications that didn't survive. But it used right. to be the main big comics magazine in America, I think. No, I mean, or the main maybe, like, more, um, what would you say, like, broad readership. I know comics journal is huge, but was maybe slightly more intellectual view of things. But anyway, magazine called Wizard. So, and so, again, this was a period where I'm just sort of, learning about all superheroes and how they interconnect and whatever and what's going on currently in comics and they had this article in there which i realized subsequently was a spoof but initially i was like oh my gosh this is incredible where it was um so at the time there was it was crisis on infinite uh crisis on i think crisis on infinite earth is the 80s story isn't it but there was something around 2005 six where it was like dc's follow-up to that yeah, I can't remember what it was. And it was written by Jeff Johns and it had a lot of build up towards it. Crisis on something anyway. And um, anyway, as part of this article, they showed the cover of Superman 1. So I don't know. I mean, readers probably have seen that image where it's like Superman has a car held above his head. 
and in the foreground, I think to the right of the cover image, there's a man, sort of, I think he's in a business suit, maybe with ginger hair, and he's clutching his own head, and his eyes are wide with terror, and he's running away from this scene, right? So <laughs> it's a character you can easily miss. And in this spoof article, I didn't realise it was a spoof, it had loads of comic covers from the past 40 years, and what they'd done is they'd photoshopped this man into the backgrounds of all of them. Amazing. They were saying that this was this was some subliminal thread that DC had been building up to, which was going to culminate in this grand crossover that was approaching. Like, oh my gosh, this is seventy years in the <laughs> Amazing. Making. This guy with the red hair in the background, he's behind, he's, he's a major player. Yeah. And, uh, well, yeah, it wouldn't be quite cool if that'd be real, but that sticks out of my head too as the great background character because of that. <laughs> That's brilliant, <laughs> um, but. Uh, yeah, it's it's amazing what you could do with uh, kind of some Photoshop and a and an article, yeah. and uh, yeah, get get people to <laughs> to believe that for a little while. Um, but it's kind of worth thinking that creatively, isn't it? Like, yeah, you know, um, like a lot of great artists in the past just did not have access to the technology we have today. So yeah. you want to kind of mimic their values to a degree, like things they strove for, the quality levels. But I remember someone mm-hmm. saying once. They were talking about um, this surrealist artist, I don't know very well, but I've heard of him called Max Ernst. And they were saying, they were talking about, I forget what it's called now, but there's, you might know it. There's some technology now where if you put an image into it, it kind of, it creates loads of, oh man, it's going to hard to be described, but it's almost like it, you, you feed it random data, I think, and it creates this weird psychedelic multicolored image where it finds things within it, maybe face shapes or it's some right. weird distortion effect, but it creates a very surreal image. And the person was saying, think what Max Ernst would have done with the technology of today. I kind of think, yeah, that's almost what you want. You want like the creative minds of the great heroes from whenever, the past or more recently, but yeah. utilizing the technology, the, um, the possibilities we have today. That just that yeah. sort of analogy drove that home to me a bit. Yeah, definitely. Um, it'd be really interesting to see what the likes of um, Kirby and Ditko would have been able to have done mm. with kind of the digital technology um, yeah. and resources that, yeah, that we have today. Um, yeah. But, I mean, at the same time, you know, perhaps the constraints that they had, um, you know, created some really strong foundations for, yeah. for what we have for today. Um, yeah. and, and And often, you know... Art can benefit from limitations, can't it? Yeah, yeah. Um, and you think how poor the struggle. reproduction quality... Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, yeah. part of that, how poor the reproduction quality was of comics, they had to make art that, I guess, was, like, strong enough in terms of the line work that it would overcome that, so... Yeah. Yeah, kind of Yeah, thing. exactly. It's always, it's always a double-edged sword, all that stuff, isn't it? Yeah. Um, yeah. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> um, and sorry, yeah, no, I, so I found it, listeners. Go on. Don't worry. Thank you. Nemesis. Oh, okay, okay, cool. So I've not read that, so it's just, but it's a disturbing. It it, it ends pretty darkly, put it Is that it? way. Um, yeah, I won't reveal it. It's it. it uh, I found it a, a, an interesting, a good read. Um, I know some people didn't enjoy it so much, <laughs> but it it ends pretty darkly. Um, but uh, yeah, de- de- definitely give it a go um, if you come across it. <laughs> definitely cool. um yeah i'm um, kind of on the same wavelength as uh as invisibles there. yeah they, they were kind of mates weren't they as well i don't know ah, of course I feel like probably, yeah they're both scottish writers with friends probably exactly. like similar sensibility wasn't at the time no, it's exactly. quite weird to write that sort of really extreme material and think like this is paying the bills right now yeah exactly and like 
yeah where where did that come from um <laughs> but i you know I, I guess it comes from like you just trying to think of uh, a clever ending or you know putting yourself in the shoe of like a of a mafia boss or something and you know what would what would an actual mafia boss say and what has really twisted so you, yeah. you actually kind of put thought into it it's not like you kind of come up with it straight away no um, type of thing and it probably um, wouldn't be you know it's kind of impactful isn't it because it's what you don't expect and so then it probably did require a bit of yeah. thought to get to otherwise it wouldn't catch off guard in the same way yeah exactly i i, I very much doubt that any mafia bosses out there are kind of, you know, doing brainstorming activities. <laughs> I've got whiteboards on how twisted can I be in the moment. <laughs> Do you know what? I've thought that occasionally with little ideas, though. I've thought, oh, that's like a really twisted idea. I don't know if I would even use it, but it's just like a dark, maybe a form of torture or something. It's just a straight yeah. thought occurs to you. And I yeah. think, oh, would I even... What if... I know it's the sort of thing that, like, people who, like, I, I sort of want to censor, I would say, is what if uh you know someone come and did this in the real world a lot of time you know that is a bit ridiculous or people would just do it anyway like yeah. if you had this mad idea that would be quite hard society and if it's actually very actionable and it's a chance most people haven't thought of it i i would be i would think mm, do i want to put that out there yeah well, i don't can't remember what those it's ideas not. were but the most yeah. i thought i would probably avoid that it's like a lot of films and stuff like that it's like you know how how to make um house bombs and stuff like that it's like well, <laughs> don't put that out there like we don't want like loads don't call of teenagers. make house bombs this is so irresponsible <laughs> exactly oh my god it's insane and uh yeah no um it's uh it's crazy the amount of information <laughs> we've got easy access to and that we make easily available but uh yeah, yeah that's the that's the world we live in <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, moving on to a lighter subject, what's okay. the most meaningful comic to you? Most meaningful comic? Do you know what? <laughs> I wish I wish I hadn't said Alan Moore twice already, really, because I have to pick this one. I don't really have a choice about this. So I should have altered one of the earlier ones. Ah, but the most, the He's most a good writer. He is a good writer, man. <laughs> he obviously a, a big influence on me. Um, yeah. and I, like, you know, I love a lot of other writers too, but I do just think he's on another level largely in fact in fact there's two comics i'd go for here um but i imagine one i might bring up for another question because it's also big for me so i'm going to go for the alan moore one um which is a comic called miracle man olympus which used to be out of print was reprinted a few years ago didn't seem to make a huge amount of impact really i don't know if it's because well, like, so Miracle Man with his comic in the 80s, where he first did a sort of a realist take on superheroes, and it was went on to be very influential and mm. opened the doorway to him working in America. Um, and so the first volume is kind of sets that all up, and the second volume continues it. And it's a little bit of a dip in quality, but still pretty interesting. But the third one, I don't think you could read that and say, like, oh, I'm, this is so blase because we do it all the time now, because it's very much the ideas are just contained within that comic. You know, they. they they the specific the story it's telling. It's not something you could just transplant superheroes generally. And so the premise of it is, so you have this Superman-like figure called Miracle Man, and essentially this book is riffing on Greek mythology. So I think it's six chapters, and every chapter is based over some Greek mythological figure. So like one of them is called Kronos, who's like the titan of time. Um, another one might be called... Uh, it might be called Apollo or something that relates to someone who's like has a firepower or something, one or another. Nemesis is when they face the villain. Nemesis was uh, some Greek mythological character. Anyway, so partly I love it because the art's by John Tottleburn, who's my favourite comic book artist. 
And there's also a reason I'm a huge fan of Swamp Thing. I just, uh, but one of the things I majorly love about him is um, his panel compositions because they're always very imaginative. And there's nothing wrong with the more standard layout, but I do get a big kick out of seeing, thinking like, you know, you've got the imagination of the story, the imagination of the camera angles and the telling on a more emotional level of the image itself. But the actual page construction is a source of pleasure on top of that. For me, it just kind of pushes it up again, that extra effort that's put in there. So his artwork's a big thing. And essentially the stories uh, told from the, the present, which is after the main events it's telling, which I've heard some people like complain about saying, oh, but then you know Miracle Mind's going to survive. But I kind of think, you know, most stories are told in the present tense. And this is kind of really interesting because it's doing something different and it's going for a different effect. The effect it creates by knowing he survives is it puts emphasis, you know, you're not about whether he'll survive. It's about the meaning of what's going on in the story that's unfolding. And it casts events because they're being see seen in retrospect in this kind of poignant, melancholic light, but you don't know why it's melancholy at that point, which is, you know, is an interesting way to approach it. And essentially, it's the story of how Miracle Man creates paradise on Earth, so or a kind of paradise, an idea of it. And in it, you see him um, him and the other super character in the world meet an alien species, and what emerges in terms of global politics from that. I mean, there's a great, great one page in it where it's um, Miracle Man goes to the UN, and he sees Margaret Thatcher there, the sort of 80s, you know, UK Prime Minister. Mm. And I know Alan Moore hated Margaret Thatcher, right? Yeah. So on a personal level, you think it would just be quite like a vitriolic or mean-spirited depiction of this woman or whatever. Yeah. But it's really human. It's like she has this moment of yeah. saying, he's saying basically we're going to get rid of all nuclear weapons. She right. says, what makes you, um, we're not going to allow this. And he says, um, allow what makes you think, you know, you can you have any say in this essentially i paraphrase that the wording is better in the actual comic but then right. it shows her shuffling off looking very distraught kind of knowing that uh her power has gone from her and it's something like at then she looks like so small and frail i couldn't help feel sorry for her so, you know just little weird touches like that the way it's using a real world person it's coming from an angle you didn't expect but wow. um it has things and it has very emotional scene which is brilliantly done it has a daughter who's like first superpowered creature on the planet and she is going to go she's like four years old but she can talk she can fly she's more intelligent than everyone around her and she comes back there's a really good scene where i know i'm sort of talking a bit about this but uh, just a couple of other things quite where right. she yeah, comes different. she comes back to earth after miracle man is remade it's this paradise and it's all super beings everywhere and there's really no war there's just a few maybe different religious factions but basically it's a very peaceful orderly society and she has this line where she looks up at the sky and says to her dad, so um, did you decide to leave it that colour? It's just, it's just it's cute. And it's very imaginative that the little kid would say that. It's a cool kind of, I don't know, it just plants you in that world well. But what it also, it kind of, by the end of it, it lays down a blueprint of, I guess, what Alan Moore thinks would be how to move towards a utopian society. And its penultimate issue is one of the most violent, gory, uh, comics i've come across not in a way that's unpleasant it's just really saying if there was an evil superman character how much violence could they do if they were left alone for a few hours because at this yeah. point all the supers on the planet and it's just like the sort of absolute annihilation of london and gory destruction of a lot of bodies and whatever it's very intense and powerful there's a lot of really intellectual ideas and there's a lot of it's few sequences that are just beautiful and actually so that comic when i got it which was about 17 so that would have been before I went to university, because I remember 
you know, I remember talking about it at university, so I now read it shortly before. So this would have been about 2007 before it was reprinted. So I was well into Alan Moore at this point. I've read Miracle Man Volume 1. All of this was out of print, and I was just getting into eBay, getting comics through that. Miracle Man Volume 1, I got it for 50 quid, which was a lot of money for me. And so yeah. that was great. And I was like, I've got to get Volume 2, which was also about 50 quid. It was about that level of scarcity, I guess. Got that. Not quite as good, but man, I hear Olympus is great, and I'm, I really want to get that. But that one was by far the rarest graphic novel. And that was, I mean, I ended up buying it for £112. And I was like, I think I had to ask my mum if I could have some money, or, you know, maybe it was like borrowed ahead for my birthday or something. And my argument was, which was pretty reasonable in this sense like it's a scarce comic if i don't like it i'll just resell it for the same price because it's always going on ebay for like 110 pounds so i got it with this great sense of expectation and it's i've only twice in my life had a reading experience which like really i could feel physiologically affected me where my heart was beating faster i felt kind of adrenalized i was getting just really caught up in the story and that was the first time i experienced that and so that always sticks in my head as maybe probably my favorite reading experience ever and so it's got to be the most, you know, meaningful graphic novel for me. That's awesome. Um, yeah, no, it's it's great when you've got a got. A, I don't know, just when you've got a big book, yeah, and and you feel like um, this is going to make the experience so much more heightened. Yeah, um, and, and you go with expectation, it, and it does yeah. live up to it. You know. Yeah, as well. Yeah, no, it's fantastic. You know when um, people say, like, if there's sometimes there's a really big film or something and the sequel is a little bit of a disappointment, people say, well, it's always going to be a disappointment. Yeah. Like, not always. I know, like, the odds are no. against it. Because, like, even say, yeah, like, people love the first Matrix, and obviously a lot of the mind-blowing thing of that was the whole concept. And yeah, once that exactly. universe established, it can't hit you with that again. No. But then there are things like The Empire Strikes Back or this yeah. on Olympus, where, you know, you can yeah. deliver something as good or better, which is hard. Exactly. No, it is. It's really difficult. Um, a Terminator Two, as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Just off the top yeah. of my head. Um, yeah. Um, it, no, it's it's really difficult to do, but it is totally possible. Um, to have something that kind of, yeah, pushes it further, pushes it further and enhances it. Um, Toy Story and, uh, Two, maybe definitely Toy Story yeah. Three. Great yes. Yes, very much so. Not so sure on Toy Story Four. But, no, um, yeah. it wasn't as good. I didn't <laughs> no. dropped it. But Toy Story Three, massive fond memories. Of yeah, that. yeah, yeah. I would I say just so. a very brief side note that I think Toy Story Three. I remember thinking, I feel like I've had it. Thought one other thing I've seen, but thinking that may be the most perfectly paced story I've ever watched or something. Really? Yeah. It just felt like like I just oh, Lion King's the other one I love in terms of pacing. It yeah, just feels like right. It almost like almost before on some subliminal, I'm aware that I don't want. Like this, I've had you know, this, I've got enough of this emotion. It's already phasing into the next one. It's doing so swiftly, and then we're in yeah. another emotional gear. And I'm completely in that, and it just keeps undulating between different things. Like, yeah, uh, chef kiss to that. Nice, nice. Um, yeah, no, um, it's um, yeah, it's, it's about just trying to create great experiences, isn't it? Mm. Um, all of that, and uh, yeah, it certainly sounds like Miracle Man. Olympus um, kind of nailed it on the head. Uh, just looking on eBay just now, it's going yeah. for like uh, pretty much 250 quid minimum. This is the original thing, I guess. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. The and then like so, some are over a thousand. So, yeah, and there's like hardbacks yeah. or scarce things. Yeah. I'm interested, you know, just we're talking about, you know, writing, trying to make the perfect experience. 
when yeah. you because this is different approach among different writers when you write do you write for you or do you write for an imagined audience mm, more, no more more me yeah um, i have to I don't yeah get how you i would be absolutely paralyzed every decision yeah. would become impossible because it even was. someone i know very well i'm not sure yeah. they will like something i think they will yeah yeah exactly. i just to base it on an audience where you are second guessing when you can't you there's no way to know it need yeah. you need to base it on something solid like your own taste i think yeah i think you're right um yeah definitely have to kind of write to your own taste and then just hope that other people like that <laughs> and, and uh, yeah and they kind of it doesn't mean obviously it'll be like a big success but i think no one is so unique yeah. that something that you love wouldn't resonate with a fair large number of other humans on the planet yeah you never exactly. meet someone and go oh i absolutely love this but unfortunately i'm the only one in humanity that does there's always yeah. quite big groups that love something so it's exactly. inevitable if it works for you it'll find other people who like it i think no exactly um and and that kind of yeah plays into just you know you writing the stories that you want to get out um and and that's where perhaps good writing comes from um is you know the writer is just kind of yeah you know in a sense speaking their truth um to their to their story um and then yeah just other people find it interesting enjoy it and yeah resonates yeah and i mean just to say um i find like what i couldn't it would be like a dull job to not write for your own enjoyment you're writing stuff that you don't particularly enjoy well you might as well almost just be working like doing an advertising company where you're writing things for products you don't really necessarily believe in it's not going to be a world away emotionally at that point it's an experience i also really believe um in this i heard once that you know the word enthusiasm apparently the roots of that in greek mean to be possessed by a god to be enthused by something to be possessed by a god right and so i kind of take that to mean like you are the optimum you it's like you're performing at a higher level which makes sense because your brain's more engaged by something you enjoy so if you write something you're enthusiastic about you're gonna you're gonna do better things why would you turn that down i think it's where you've got to go nice yeah um kind of i guess um speak through your inner gods yeah <laughs> <laughs> it, could, it could be the the name of like a comic book writing workshop couldn't it <laughs> totally could, <couldn't> that? <laughs> yeah alongside tony robinson um speak through your inner gods <laughs> um, people would have to sign up they'd want to find out what that was about right yeah about. definitely definitely hook them in with the free ebook and then get them to sign up to a 10 grand writing course easy um <laughs> Uh, but uh, yeah moving on to um another of my uh favorite questions and that is what's the most underrated comic that you've read so the most underrated comic that i've read was um one i used to be in like the comic society at university which was essentially i think just meeting on a thursday evening or something people would bring graphic novels and you just sit in a room and chat and just sort of browse through them and that's how i came across this which was a graphic novel called kill your boyfriend by grant morrison now, have you heard of it? I don't think it's that well known. No. And I think I ended up getting a physical copy of it a few years later because I suddenly thought, actually, I really, you know, that was my really good read. I should have a copy of that. And it was quite hard to get hold of at like an affordable right. price. So, you know, it must be relatively not that not that um, well printed or something. But anyway, so Kill Your Boyfriend, it's not, there's nothing superhero related in it. And I reread it earlier just to remind myself of it because I thought I'd probably talk about it at some point. But essentially, it's the idea. It's very punk. It's very. It's got a bit of the feeling of like 
almost a film like Speed just because it is just a rush forward from start to finish. It's like the plot never stops. It's going bang, 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 bang. You almost don't, one thing flows seamlessly to the next. It's very short. It's probably only like 70 pages, 60 pages with not tons of dialogue. So it's zippy. And it essentially starts with, it's set in the 90s and it's this bored teenage girl. Uh, she hasn't had sex yet. She's got a boyfriend. She like doesn't really feel very attracted to. She doesn't really like her parents. She doesn't at home. It just feels like she hates the world and hates everyone but doesn't know why. Maybe she's a bad person. That kind of like teenage malaise or whatever. Something quite typical. And basically, she just meets this person who's known to be locally a bit of like a bad kid about her age, you know, a bit of trouble. And they just go on this cemented, completely indefensible killing crime spree. But it does it with a real panache of, because it's just a fiction and you're just living vicariously through the characters, like how fun it would be to just let go and go a bit mental and give into those impulses. So, you know, she starts like, uh, dressing different, reordering, getting a new identity where she's more glamorous. They just go mug elderly people because they're just like, why not? It's there. There's a line in it where it's like, um, vandalism is best when it's meaningless and completely unfair. So let's just do that. You know what I mean? Like, it's not, <laughs> not really moral anyway, but it's just really about what would that rush feel like to just throw off all the normal rules and go on this health skeletal run through life. And then there's like, the police are on their town. There's quite a lot of dark humour. It's obviously like quite a sort of um, kind of a mocking view of a lot of conventional things in life. And they go meet yeah. this um, sort of uh, uh, this art group that say they're kind of very anarchist essentially. And we're going to take um, a grenade to Blackpool Tower and really shake things up and all this. And then it turns out they just believe it conceptually and they don't really have any teeth about what they're thinking. And so then the, their character's like, let's just go do it for real. And it just, uh, it just, it just it sort of grabs you from the first page oh it's also told i've forgotten this but i I saw it when i read it earlier where the female narrate the female main character she'll often just turn and start talking to the reader at certain moments kind of not explaining her behavior but just kind of going like well i'm in too deep now or like oh we'd already done that so why don't we just plow on or whatever it's all a bit wry the tone of the comic um but just really fun and leaves a strong impression and feels very punk you know if any of the stuff happens in real life would be completely objectionable but in a comic with that kind of tone to it, it's just very interesting. It does it really well. It's a really fun read. Um, and I think sometimes his writing can be patched. Some of it's very good, some of it not so much. But that is just, it maintains its quality from start to finish. That's interesting. I'll have to check this one out. Yeah, well, um, a good title as well, right? Kill Your Boyfriend. I mean, it gets your attention. Yeah, well, yeah, definitely. Definitely. <laughs> um, Actually, it also feels like it's got like, uh, you know, like, the maybe the 90s rave scene a little bit of very it feels very like it's embedded in that era and almost like you can get a little taste of that energy like I wasn't you know I was a kid then I was I was just into punk at school when I was seven years old but I didn't go to the nightclubs um <laughs> but you know like you get a taste of if you were an adult then and you're going to the club scene probably what a bit of that energy was like and it's quite cool when a piece of art one way or another it's a little time capsule for that you know so it's got that merit as well to it Oh, that's cool. I have to have to check that one out for sure. Um, now, coming on to our penultimate question, and that is, dun, what dun, comic? Dun. Yes, uh, what comic would you recommend to a friend who's never read comics? So, I've actually I've, I've thought about something. I've, I've actually I've lived this. I've test trialed this, and it totally worked. Nice. So, it's not going to be a surprising choice at all. I'll probably one you've had a few times on air. I don't know, but I would recommend Sandman. So, Sandman is the comic I nearly mentioned earlier in terms of meaningful comics. 
I would yeah. still put Olympus ahead. But Sandman is um, huge for me. I think it's amazing works. It's very literary, you know, not in a pretentious sense, just that it's exciting and has all these threads into other exciting bits of literature and mythology. Um, and it's got lots of short stories. It feels it was a comic that was very popular with women as well as men. So I think, it, mm-hmm. you know, it it wasn't doing a lot of the typical, I suppose, language comics that might lean towards action or violence. There was a lot of kind of emotion thought and a bit more like ten, emotional tenderness, I suppose, in the writing things it was touching on. Right. Um, it just felt quite deep, but, um, you know, still powerful, but it did it very elegantly. And uh, I remember at uni, I used to live with someone in first year and still close to the second, third year. And they studied, I think, engineering and they were kind of looking to just read a bit of comics. So I, I must have given them a salmon gruffness or something. I'm sure this all came from me. That's how I remember this. <laughs> um, and and they read a bit of Sandman graphic novel. They got into it and they ended up reading what the versions I got, which was the absolute editions. You know, those big, uh, big weighty hardbacks where the art's oversized. And they're quite, they're expensive, but they have a lot of nice. background materials. And it feels like, you know, it's like you're going to watch IMAX to read the comic or something. Exactly. Right. Optimum yeah. version. And he read it all through, read it way quicker than me. So maybe more so then, but quite slow. I was like pouring over it all and really trying to absorb it. He just yeah. sipped through it all. And he was like, love it, want to read more. And off the back of that, very much was when he didn't really read much full stop. You know, he played a lot of computer games and he watched a lot of TV, but he didn't read much anything at all. After reading Sam, and he was like, I'm thinking of starting to read some Shakespeare plays. And I was like, oh, this is really wow. it's quite a big impact on you. But it's because Shakespeare's in the Sandman comic a little bit and it riffs yeah. off some of the energy of Shakespeare's work. And I always thought, I really love Sandman. That's maybe interesting, this other thing. And I don't think he ever actually did go and read the Shakespeare or if he did, he maybe tried one and didn't go any further. But yeah. it's, no, it's no mean feat to take someone who doesn't read a lot. And by the end of it, they're like, I love that so much. I'm going to go to this other thing that's known to be quite difficult and, exactly. you know, obscure. So, yeah. Yeah, Sandman um, is a comic I would recommend to anyone. And it's also, it's like 75 issues. It's nice that it's, and it, it maintains its quality. You know, I talked yeah. about Invisibles earlier, and for me, doesn't work. His patch, you didn't culminate in a way that I found satisfying enough. Whereas right. I think Sandman, there's the odd bit where maybe there's a slightly weaker issue, although there's tons of gems in there. But I, one of the first things I think when I think of the series is just like, oh, it's almost got two endings. One which is the main narrative of the main character, and then almost like an epilogue which just talks more about some of the themes that have been gone on things through like a story set in the past and both endings. You'll know, you must know this as well, right? Where like sometimes if you can't think of the ending, it's a nightmare really, because oh, yeah. it feels like it undermines all the work you do beforehand. And I'm just yeah. about the planning stage. You know, what is really going to, what's going to feel right? Sometimes it doesn't feel yeah. like it's there. What's it building it's towards? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it, and it does define it, doesn't it really? 100%. Final piece. And yeah. so to have such a sprawling epic like Sandman, which had so many short stories and other characters, and, how, and it's really like the graphic novel about stories, how are mm. you going to wrap that up in a way that does justice to what came before? Mm-hmm. And I just think it's like absolutely hits the nail on the head. Yeah. No, that's fantastic. Um, and uh, yeah, no, um, it's, it's got it all, I think. Um, so it's, have, you, um, have you read Sandman? Not fully, no. No, but you read quite, yeah. So apparently, like, I heard Grant Morrison say that Sandman's look is based on Neil Gaiman, right? Right. As you can see to some extent. And then Grant Morrison, yeah. in his Invisibles, based the main character on him with the idea that it would make him look sort of seem cooler than he is and sexier because he's like, right. it's quite, just quite, um, 
that's quite an interesting thing to do, isn't it? Make the main character look like yourself. Give them loads of cool yeah. and make yourself, your aura, bigger by association, maybe. Yeah, I guess so. Um, yeah, no. Um, I mean, I think some people do that kind of subconsciously, mm. perhaps, as well. Like, um, I'm trying to remember who had done that and denied it. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> what, it's you, like, they genuinely didn't know they'd done it? Yeah, I think so. Asked. I think so. Um, yeah, they generally didn't think that, you know, it was clearly a reflection of them. <laughs> hey, this guy's a mass murderer. Why are you associating with me? I remember when I was on my creative writing course at uni. So, you, well, a lot of it is like you, a couple of people bring their work for that week and then you go around the group and give feedback on it. And mm. there was one that this girl brought in, right? And she used to work in wildlife conservation or had some sort of connections with it. She's a few years older than me. Mm. Um, and she wrote this story about a deer dying. It was something like that, right? Right. And the story and the sort of the description of the blood coming out of the deer and its demise was very erotically written. Like wow. the metaphors were clear, whatever. Like it wasn't like crass or creepy or anything. It just felt like, oh, she's making this sort of weird and disturbing by laying a lot of like erotic kind of similes sure. or whatever over the top of it. Yeah. This was mentioned in the groups who were going around, people saying, oh, yeah, of course you also do this. She was completely uh, caught off guard by that. She was like, Really? What? I'm like, well, yeah, you did it. It's like blatant. Yeah, you do it all throughout. You do it all the time. And she had no idea she'd done it. I could not believe that was something amazing. Yeah, isn't like, that? I mean, it, it does. Yeah, exactly. It does. It does go to show what kind of yeah it does get past you in the writing process, and you don't realise that you're putting in these yeah subliminal, subconscious undertones to your writing, and then yeah. somebody external comes in and points it out. And I mean, that's the great thing of of creative courses where you are getting direct feedback from people and they say oh i see why you did this and you're like oh i guess i did <laughs> um, or you completely deny it and then you know storm off um but, <laughs> yeah no um, it's that's that's fantastic uh, now uh, on to our last question okay um if you could only take one comic into the apocalypse which would it be and in, on your hang glider of course as well Ah, okay, okay. So one comic. So it's, it's, I know what I'm going to go for. So the idea is, I think, you know, society's in a lot of upheaval. I've lost my connection to TV, to the internet. Who knows what that's going to do to my mind. I might have had some sort of psychological collapse. I think to survive in this difficult world, I'm going to need some sort of hard-boiled rebirth. I'll come back tough and better than ever. That's what's going to see me through. And so with that in mind, the comic I'm going to take with me to inspire me is uh, called Daredevil Born Again, written by Frank Miller with art by David Mazzuchelli. And essentially what that story is about. So I said earlier about getting into Astonishing Spider-Man, you know, that got me into comics, which I've been into them since. That's the main point. But what that quickly led to was getting like a forbidden planet catalogue back in the day. This was like in the era of dial-up internet, so you couldn't go online very easily. There probably wasn't really any online shop. So it's a physical catalogue, had all these graphic novels. Didn't know what any of them, who they were, what the characters were, but they all seemed exciting. And the ones that stood out and that I went for, there was one that was Daredevil Yellow by Jeff Loeb, which was good, and Tim Sale. And then I also got Frank Miller's Daredevil run in the 80s. That was three volumes, and that was mind-blowing. I loved that. 
And so then I was a real big fan of Frank Miller's work around that period. And Born Again was when he returned to the character, uh, I guess, like a few years later, like five, six years later, towards the end of the 80s. And essentially, and I really like this type of story anyway, I've realised, it's the type of story where basically the central character gets disassembled. You kind of take apart and look at the pieces of what made them tick, and then you reassemble them into a better form. So it's mm-hmm. kind of a bit like what, um, say, an Alan Moore might do with like Swamp Thing when he went and did a revisionist writing of that. Take it apart, rejig it, put it together so it works better for the future. And it was the same idea with this Daredevil story. And so the first issue, his main sort of uh, adversary in the comic is the Kingpin, who's like the crime lord in New York City. And essentially the first issue is that the Kingpin, dis- he finds out that Matt Murdock is um, an ex-lover of Matt Murdock's who's become uh, addicted to drugs, ends up selling his identity for money. That's how the story begins. It's quite explosive start. And then because the Kingpin knows that Daredevil is Matt Murdock, the lawyer, the first issue is him just dismantling his life from a number of different levels. So it might be his legal practice gets dissolved. Then his bank account is shut down. Then his home is destroyed. Then his friends start deserting, whatever. It's every angle of his life is taken up for him. The whole first issue is just the collapse of his existence. And then he's on the street. He's homeless. Uh, he's just wrecked. And issues two, three and four, it might be six issues. It might be four. I can't remember. It's quite a tight story. Is just like the rebirth and the regrowth of him into a more empowered form at the end, and it's it's a cool story. Nice, <clears throat> that's wicked. Um, and you feel like, yeah, that is hopefully give you, yeah, some hope for the future to reassemble your life <laughs> in this solar flare reset. Yeah, I think. Uh, yeah, I mean, I don't. Know. I suppose my life would still be better than his because we still have a lot of things in society. So also, yeah, you can look at someone and go, it could be worse. Yes, yeah, exactly. There must be someone in the world for whom that phrase is just not true, right? You know, there's always yeah. something worse off. The, that's a tough place to be in. I don't know that's what how comic gets you out of that, toughest. but it's tough. Yeah. Don't think about it. Yeah, no, don't don't think about it. Uh, <laughs> just keep, just keep walking. But um, yeah, no, that's fantastic. And uh, what weapon, tool, or useful item would you take with you as well? Okay. Well, as I said earlier, got to give serious thought to an apocalypse. It's all or nothing at this point. So I'm thinking resources are scarce. We don't know how humanity can behave, but is there going to be a lot of solidarity or is it going to be every person out for themselves? There might be a lot of paranoia in the air. What's going to keep, what's going to get me through that? So what I've decided upon is, and I don't know, it's going to have to find its own water or fly with me on a hand glider, but I'm going to get a very little adorable puppy. The smaller, the better. Okay. Nice. And the reason for this is I saw a friend a little while ago in London and she had this puppy that was like a week or two old, was carrying it in her bag. It was of a breed that it's only going to be like, it was a mini something or other. It's only going to be two thirds the size of the standard breed, even when it grows full size. And I tell you what, everywhere she went, as soon as this puppy poked head out of the bag, it, amazing how it disarmed everyone in the vicinity who saw it. Yeah, Immediately totally. loved it, gooey eyes, wanted to talk to her, friendly. I kind of felt like you could, even if you were pretty convinced someone had, she they say they were pretty convinced that she had mugged them, but then they saw the puppy, they'd probably go, No, oh, probably not. You know, I mean she they just like it in their mind. And so I think if I go around this apocalypse with this puppy, whenever I need to interact with other people, immediately they'll let me into their group, they'll share their resources and that's the golden nice. ticket. That is genius. Well, Joshua Spiller, thank you so much for sharing your comics with the apocalypse. It's been a real pleasure.
Hey, thanks so much for having me, Sam. It's been awesome. Uh, no worries. And uh, remind us one more time where people can find you online and what projects you got on. Absolutely. So the big one right now is Cinevore One on Kickstarter. That's S-I-N-A-V-O-R-E. Please check that out. That'd be brilliant. Um, in terms of where you can find me generally, there's uh, Twitter is at Josh Spiller. Uh, my surname's S-P-I-L-L-E-R. Uh, my Instagram is Joshua underscore Spiller. So you can see the incredible imagination at work, even just in my usernames. <laughs> and um, and I have an online store with some of the comics I mentioned earlier, like the sci-fi biography one, which is called Symbolism Rewired, or the sci-fi comedy one called Time Fracture. And to find that, go on gumroad.com. So it's G-U-M-R-O-A-D.com. And then forward slash Joshua Spiller. Nice. keep it simple and of course those uh those links are in the show notes folks um and uh do you, do you have any plans to go to comic cons later this year at all well there's nothing really set in yet actually a friend runs a local one so i'm in Cheltenham at the moment at a library yeah. and he's run it mm. the year before the pandemic and it was meant to happen during the pandemic and also cancelled yeah. so if that mm. goes on soon i'd particularly love to go to that one and mm. otherwise yeah nothing set in stone but it would be I mean, hopefully also maybe able to take Cinnable 1 to those things as well, but it'd be nice to get back yeah. amongst it a bit, you know. Yeah, it'd be fun. Yeah, totally. Well, if you, if you do go to any, let me know. Um, be good to, uh, yeah, catch up in person. It'd be awesome. Yeah, and, I'd love to. Uh, yeah, no, totally. That's uh, that's fantastic. Make sure you keep in touch. Uh, but other than that, Joshua, um, it's really been fantastic. And uh, we'll, we'll be sure to uh, keep in touch on Twitter. Nice one. Take care, man. All the best. You too. Thanks, Joshua. Thanks again to Joshua for being on Comics for the Apocalypse. It was an absolute pleasure. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a review for us on iTunes or whichever podcast service you use, as not only will it let me know that you liked it, but believe that it helps make other people aware of the show as well. If you'd like to check out Joshua's work or follow him on social media, those links are in the show notes along with all our own links to the various areas of the internet. Speaking of which, if you haven't already, be sure to visit Comic Scene's website at comicscene.org for comic news the comic club, and other fun sequential art stuff. And finally, as long as the apocalypse doesn't come to pass in the next week, I'll see you next Monday. Bye for now.